Hi there. Welcome to season two of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We are currently seeking funding through a foundation or advertising. In the meantime, this podcast is funded through a combination of community support and my own personal contributions. If you would like to contribute to the podcast so we can continue to bring episodes to you and people around the world, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash but seriously the cancer podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. Today's guest is Louise Holmes. Louise is an artist, an administrator, and a writer from Norwich in the UK. She was originally diagnosed with a rare form of cancer in 2014 and again in 2017. Since this episode was recorded, Louise went in for a second surgery from which she is currently recovering. Louise, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Ah, you're so welcome. So let's begin by you telling everyone what kind of cancer you were diagnosed with and how old you were. Sure. So I was diagnosed with appendix cancer and I was aged 34 at the time. Appendix cancer and you were 34. How did you discover that you had appendix cancer? So I had experienced IBS symptoms for a long time. So irritable bowel syndrome. Um, for years in fact Um, but it became a lot more frequent so the attacks cramping bloating indigestion were a lot more frequent and it became quite apparent that something wasn't right I literally had a gut feeling and Mm. so I went to my doctor and he prescribed um, anti-inflammatories and buscopan which is a a kind of anti-gas tablet and I kept taking those didn't see an improvement and around that time my husband's late grandmother was admitted to hospital with gallstones and as you do you kind of you know oh, okay what's that all about so I googled the symptoms one day on my lunch break mm. and uh, yeah a few of the symptoms were very similar to mine and so I thought okay I, I need to get this checked out I know something isn't quite 100% here. So I went to my my doctor and yeah, he referred me for an abdominal ultrasound and uh, it was during the ultrasound that my gallbladder showed clear, which was great. (laughs) However, uh, there was lots of abdominal uh, cysts, particularly around my spleen and also areas of fluid around my liver and around my spleen. And... uh, yeah, a couple of days after that, I went for a CT scan, which showed a lot more of the fluid in my abdomen. And within, mm. I think it was a week after that, I was, yeah, diagnosed with appendix cancer. So it all happened rather quickly. Yeah. I'm curious, were your symptoms, were there any symptoms that were any different from IBS symptoms or were they all the same? Uh, I guess looking back... <laughs> I guess looking back, there will have been occasions where I I had sharp pains in the area where my appendix uh, would have been. Um, for instance, if I sneezed too hard, um, I would get a stabbing pain there. 
and I kind of just dismissed it you know you think mm. oh you know I just it was just a muscle twinge or something like that um yeah. but uh yeah looking back I I definitely would have had instances where I think my body was trying to tell me something but being a young 20 something early 30s you think oh it's fine that's fine it's just something I've eaten you know yeah right you're already <laughs> dealing with these what you believe is IBS mm. and then so when you get another ache and a pain when you sneeze you're just like yeah it's just par for the course you just brush it off yeah exactly but your intuition told you otherwise mm, yeah like I say it was literally a gut feeling and it got to the point where particularly in the evenings I would have severe severe abdominal bloating um, to the point mm. where it would be like pins and needles across my stomach area. And uh, I just thought, I can't, I can't deal with this. I, I love my food <laughs> and I don't want to see food as the enemy. I want to be able to enjoy a meal comfortably. And so I think it was a mixture of, yeah, just knowing something wasn't quite right and also just the frustration of, of whatever this was interfering with my daily life. So they determined that you have appendix cancer. Mm. And what were the next steps? Well, my my doctor, so my GP or general practitioner, as we call them in the UK, um, he hadn't actually heard of appendix cancer himself, which is quite common. Uh, it's, it's a very rare form of cancer, and it's believed to affect one to two people in every million each year. So it's incredibly rare. Uh, it's so yeah. rare, in fact, that a lot of medical professionals haven't actually heard of it themselves. Um, my doctor was one of them. Uh, so <laughs> it was a case of him literally going onto a charity website and finding the details. And he, I always remember, and I've still got the piece of paper, he wrote it on a little slip of paper and said, this is what you've got. Uh, you're going to need specialist treatment. It's very rare. Uh, I really don't know much else about it. Um, you kind of need to go and just, I guess, research it yourself, which, as you, <laughs> you can understand, it's uh, incredibly uh, overwhelming, isolating, all these different emotions when you're told that you have cancer. But yeah. then when you realise this is so rare that even my doctor doesn't really understand it that makes you feel like oh, like the rug has been completely pulled from underneath you um yeah I mean my doctor was great don't get me wrong he um he was a junior doctor so our doctor surgery um employs a lot of uh, doctors in their first year of training um so, so what kind of doctor uh so it's a general practitioner so mm -hmm. in the UK, we have the National Health Service. So we're very lucky to have a, a free health service. And our, our family doctor, if you like, um, or general practitioner, yep. um, they're kind of a, a local surgery and they deal with day-to-day -day ailments, problems. And so, uh, yeah, this guy was in his first year of general practice and uh, so I think it was quite a steep learning curve for all of us. <laughs> yeah. Now, did he offer to have his office do the research and find out where you should go? Or did he literally say, this is what you have, now you should go research it? Uh, well, it was a mixture of both, really. So he advised to 
uh, only go on recommended sources online. So be careful not to uh, stumble across uh, the muddy waters of the internet. Uh, but yeah. he recommended a couple of websites that I could get some more uh, comprehensive information on the condition. Um, however, he also informed me that our local hospital would be taking on my case and they would be dealing with it. It actually turned out that uh, one of the surgeons at my local hospital had experience of dealing with this rare disease as well, which was reassuring. Uh, yeah. my, local, my local hospital wasn't actually the place where I received my treatment, however. Uh, it's a local, um, so it's a, a hospital down in a place called Basingstoke in Hampshire in the UK. And that's where the, the the cancer is actually treated. So there's actually only two centres in the whole of the UK that can treat this particular form of appendix cancer. And mm. yeah, so I had to travel four hours uh, away from my home for my treatment. And uh, I think it's about 170 miles away. And he basically informed me that I'd need to go to this place in Hampshire for my treatment but my local hospital would be carrying out any other in initial investigations such as colonoscopy just to check out that I didn't have any bowel involvement or anything like that so I kind of had to be fired in all directions uh, for a couple of months before my actual treatment began in Hampshire. Hmm. So did Hampshire, um, did the hospital in Hampshire end up working in tandem with your local hospital? To keep they, you from doing all the extra travel when necessary, or when yeah. it was available. Yeah. So the uh, like I say, the the initial uh, investigation stage was done locally for me. So my colonoscopy, I had to see a gynaecologist as well, and uh, that was all done locally. So just checks and assessments that stage, and then my actual treatment was carried out in the Basingstoke and North Hampshire General Hospital. And that was uh, three months to the day from my diagnosis. And uh, my, my treatment was quite radical. So the, the treatment for uh, appendix cancer and the particular kind that I have is called pseudomyxoma peritoneae. And it's abbreviated to PMP. And uh, it's, um, yeah, it's quite a radical operation to say the least. Um, I had just over eight hours of surgery and during that surgery I had my gallbladder, my spleen, what was left of my appendix, um, my peritoneal lining, so my lesser and greater omentum, um, my cervix, my ovaries, my fallopian tubes and my uterus were removed all during one operation. Um, they also oh took goodness. out... Yeah, so the um, like I say, the surgery is quite quite gnarly. Um, I also had disease around my liver and my diaphragm, so they had to strip those areas as well. Um, in a nutshell, the, the surgery for pseudomyxoma peritoneae, it's um, it's a case of going in via a, a full midline incision and removing any trace of disease. So it's not a solid tumor. It's um, a, a mucin, and um, so they have oh, to... Oh, it's a mucinous, mucinous That's carcinoma? That's right, yeah. It begins as a polyp in the appendix, 
And mm. over time, that polyp bursts, ruptures the appendix, and it secretes a fluid around the abdomen. And it's a very slow-growing disease. So according to my surgeon, I could have had this in me for between five to ten years, which is crazy thinking about it. Um, and it latches on, the mucin latches on to parts of your abdomen. Um, particularly in women, it latches onto the reproductive organs and it travels around the, the abdomen. Mm. So, um, so yeah, they took out all non-essential organs. They took out all of the mucinous tumour. And immediately after that, uh, so once they're done taking out what they needed to take out, they um, did something called chemo bath. And it's also known as heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy or HIPEC for short and it's where they heat uh, I think it's mitomycin C chemotherapy fluid they heat it up to around 42 degrees and then they pump it directly into your abdomen and it's to ensure that any remaining malingering cells are killed off um, and they did that with me I think it was three three rounds of HIPEC so it's a quite intensive <laughs> treatment, to yes. say the least. So they tell you, in order to treat this, we need to remove your gallbladder, your spleen, your cervix, your uterus, your ovaries. You said your gr lesser and greater what? Uh, amentum. So it's um, around our abdomen. We have a, it's also called a, a peritoneal lining or an amental cake. So it's, it's kind of like, imagine between your internal organs and your muscle and tissue, you have a, an mm -hmm. area like a wallpaper, if you like, um, of a full sheet of lining. Um, so that was taken out as well because the disease had latched on to, to that particular area. Okay, so Louise, how did you feel how did you respond like how did your body respond when your doctors tell you that they're taking out all of these non-essential organs at the time i think i was just in survivor mode so i guess when you're you're told you're told all this information um i think the reality of it all doesn't sink in at the time so you've got your doctor telling you okay you're going to need this treatment this is what it's going going to involve um and i just remember sitting there thinking okay yeah okay if that's what needs doing let's do it and i had this uh this tunnel vision of right okay it's treatable because when you first told you got cancer your first thought is i'm gonna die Mm -hmm. But when my doctor said it is treatable in most cases, okay, that's great. And it's like reaching for an anchor and you've got hold of that anchor. And then, yeah, you can't just go with the flow as crazy as it sounds. <laughs> yeah. For me, when I was diagnosed the first time with stage two rectal cancer, mm -hmm. they explained to me the pre-treatment chemo and radiation, the surgery, and then very likely post-treatment chemotherapy. And that day, I was very matter-of-fact about it. Mm. I called my family members, had a, you know, a, uh, 
back then it was called a, uh, we had to get on a, what would it be? A, I'm trying to think. Like it was a party line, you know, we had to call. <laughs> Everybody would dial in. I mean, we still use them now, right? A conference line. But yeah. We didn't have that option with our phones back then. And I let them all know. And there was a lot of emotion on their side. I was very matter of fact. The next day when I woke up and my wife left with you know, the kids and went to work, that's when all the emotion just showed up. And I was like, what? Mm. And I just, I, I'm trying to imagine being told that all those organs are going to be removed. And, you know, uh, I mean, do you have children? We don't know. I've never been particularly broody. However, when I think the reality of knowing that that's that opportunity, that privilege of having children is going to be snatched away from you in such a brutal yeah. way as well. You know, the, my, what, the, the very organs that make me a woman are going to be cut out of me. And it's, it's quite a blow. It's, um, like I say, at the time, I kind of just went with the flow. Um, I think my, my mum and my mother-in-law uh, dealt with it maybe not as well as I did. Um, yeah, grieving for mm -hmm. the grandchildren that they would never have. Um, I found it more difficult telling my mum not just the complexities of the surgery that I was about to have, but also the yeah the emotional side of it was very hard to navigate um and very hard to explain because it's such uh such intense treatment you're only kind of getting your own head around it and then having to relay that to close relatives and they're asking questions and quite rightly so you know they want to to understand okay does this really need to happen to treat your cancer um that was really really difficult to deal with um, and it's, yeah, I, I think it's something that took a long time to, to catch up with me. Um, and, mm. and even then, like I said, I've never been particularly, um, maternal, but yeah, when, when the opportunity is taken away from you, that choice is taken away from you, that's a real blow, a real blow. Yeah. Like I may not want children, but as soon as I find out that the option is being taken away, I can imagine myself being real stirred up, like, wait a second. Exactly. I I was married at the time when I was diagnosed, and I had a son who was nine, a stepson, excuse me, who was nine, and my newborn boy who was four months old, and they told me that the radiation was going to very likely make me sterile. So his mom and I had a conversation about you know do I want to you know uh I guess like uh store semen yeah before that we have the treatment however that was a very brief conversation because she said I'm not having another kid <laughs> 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 at least that's what I recall and it, my apologies if that's not what you said she's listening now oh uh, yeah so it, I did not go ahead with that but yeah just to Oh, we we had the option to to freeze some eggs and to to harvest them and then freeze them. So if we did want to uh, go through any kind of um, fertility treatment, then there was 
initially that option, but then it soon became apparent that, okay, we really need to operate here and that it was kind of a a mutual decision between myself, my husband and my surgeon that it's best to just crack on and, and get this treated really. So harvesting eggs would have, or may I say, so there was an urgency with the surgery. Kind of, yes. And harvesting of eggs. Yeah, so it's it's offered to, to women and to uh, to give that choice. However, I think because of the extent of the disease in me, whilst it's classed as elective surgery, there was a sense of urgency that we need to get this treated and we need to get this, yeah, get this cancer out. And that's another level mm. when you're told there's an urgency. When I was diagnosed, a friend called and said, find out how much time you have before action must be taken. That way you can get additional opinions. And so hearing that, I was like, oh my goodness, thank you. Because I would have, I don't know if I wouldn't have thought of it, but it certainly brought my attention to something that made such a difference for me. And so when I asked, you know, they said, okay, you know, in the next few months and my entire body just relaxed. Like, you know, I don't know if they're going to tell me the next few days, you know, I, I have no <laughs> idea. And, and knowing this matters and your doctor came from the other side and said, no, like very soon, like this needs to happen very soon. Yeah. So it was a, a matter of, okay, you can choose when you have the surgery so he literally gave me a sheet of paper with a list of dates on and they ranged from two weeks time to two months time. And oh, it's, oh my goodness. it's so crazy. Uh, okay. Take your pick. Where would you like this massive surgery? You know, uh, you, you have to laugh about it. <laughs> I'm know? thinking of Friday because yeah, on, yeah. on the weekdays, I like to be able to do X, right? Like, Oh my goodness. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, yeah, it, that was an interesting meeting. Uh, I was expecting maybe, so the, the, the meeting that I had with my surgeon was in the November, which was two months after my initial diagnosis. And it was to go through my scan images in a lot more detail. Uh, this would be the guy who was actually operating on me. Um, so it was the first time that I'd met him, Mr. Cecil at Basingstoke Hospital. And... Mm. He explained a lot more in detail about what the operation would involve. He showed me the CT scan images as well, so I could actually see for myself the areas of cancer in my abdomen. And like I say, we kind of discussed dates for when the surgery would be uh, conducted. And yeah, it was most intense. I would say one of the most intense or the most intense day of my life. And just in the space of, I think, 15 minutes in that meeting, it all really hit home. I think before it had been just words discussed between different doctors and letters through the, through the post. Whereas this was, OK, I'm actually seeing it on a screen for the first time. I can actually see what is in my body. And the bizarre thing was, apart from these kind of IBS-like symptoms, I was perfectly fit and healthy. I was just a normal 34-year-old woman, working full-time, going out at the weekends, having fun, 
and I felt completely healthy and yet I was facing this massive massive operation and yeah that's a lot to get your head around yeah you said it all just hit home mm, mm. can you say more about that mm, yeah I think particularly with seeing the scan images around my reproductive organs so for most women my age when you see any scan images of the womb area it's for a baby so it's that happy event um but for me the first time i see my womb on a scan image it's packed full of this mucin so that was yeah that's pretty brutal really um and like i say whilst me and my husband haven't actually you know uh, craved children or starting a family it would have been nice if it had happened and actually seeing it there quite literally in black and white was bam wow that's all in my body right here right now you know and that's a lot Got yeah it. that's a lot okay, to deal yeah. with emotionally but me being me I kind of yeah I'm quite pragmatic so at the time it's like okay right yeah that's interesting okay so that's what we're gonna do and this is when we're gonna do it and I kind of um a lot of <laughs> a lot of my friends think I'm quite hard-nosed because <laughs> I don't cry very often I'm very uh like I said I'm very pragmatic and straight talking and I think particularly around the time of my diagnosis and and in the lead up to my operation um that was even more amplified so it was a kind of right okay this is what we're gonna do let's get on with it and I think it wasn't until maybe a year or two after that 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 wave of uh, the after effects mentally really hit me really but at the time it's kind of yeah okay let's get on with it <laughs> so it was a year or two after mm. that it really started to sink in yeah yeah and I think you go into that survivor mode and the adrenaline is at full pace and I think your body just deals with what is thrown at it and then your mind kind of realizes it, it suddenly thinks hang on a moment did that all just happen um there's a bit of denial in there i guess as well and having been thrown into surgical or post-surgical menopause there's all these hormonal issues and sensations and feelings and thoughts flying about as well and yeah it's quite a tricky period to navigate and i didn't actually seek any help for my mental well-being until it would have been four years after my surgery because I, there's the which i think is quite a, a damaging false narrative for anyone who's been told they've got cancer that you have to be a fighter and you have to be a warrior and you've got to be brave and a lot of the time you don't want to show how you're truly feeling because you don't want your loved ones to worry and you don't want to I guess kind of break that that tough exterior and really kind of um, show any vulnerability because you, you're in that I've got this mode you know and I think that that took a while to catch up with me that okay oh, I need to address okay. this you know <laughs> I love hearing that because my response was the opposite okay. where I I opened up and shared with everyone what was happening. Um, 
That's interesting. That's that interesting. made it easier for me. And when people say to me, I don't know what I would do if I had cancer, you know, in, in response to how I responded. And what I say to them is like, I'm certainly no expert, but from my observations and my personal experience, my guess is you would respond to it the same way you respond to everything. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be in a more magnified scale, right? Yeah, precisely. So I'm a person who shares, you know, I'm very uh, sensitive, emotional person. And I share my experience with people when they ask. Like when mm-hmm. people ask me how I'm doing, I tend to actually tell them. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's good, especially for, for a man to, to openly say that is really enlightening, actually. I think that's great hmm. because a lot of men are quite emotionally repressed, shall we say. And they don't like talking about their feelings. They don't like sharing their emotions. And I think, mm, yeah. I think if we open up more discussion about not just mental health, but emotional well-being and the importance of talking about things, I think that's, I know it's a whole new different subject to, to cancer in a way, but I think it, it definitely goes hand in hand. Um, and it, it does need to be something that we shouldn't feel ashamed about. And that mm-hmm. I guess in the UK, we've got the, the classic... British kind of stiff upper upper lip no we're fine no we'll crack on we're all jolly good and uh, I don't think that does us any favors in the long run I really don't (laughs) I've heard about that I've heard about that but is it now now is that truly a very common way for British people to be it is yeah is it more of a stereotype oh no it's really really what's so it's kind of a stereotype I think things are changing certainly with younger generations um it's it's more of a an openly discussed issue, so mental health, mental well-being. There's not that taboo around it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly with the older generations, it's it is more of a no, I'm fine, and we don't talk about that kind of thing. Or if we do, then it's just with those closest to us, and it has to be something major for us to open up. Um, and I think that's just the way it's been just for a long time. And it's just a, mm. a bit of a, a societal norm, really. I, I should acknowledge that I had training uh, years prior to being diagnosed. I had taken some weekend programs, some courses that brought my attention to the importance of being honest about my feelings and my emotions. I'd already been an emotional and sensitive person, but I did my best to tamp it down. I wasn't very good at it, but I thought I was. Mm -hmm. And then in this program, what I learned was that by, how do I say this? When I took this program, I learned that there was freedom in being honest about who I was because when I try to hide who I am, then there's shame around me. And when I recognized I didn't design me. I was born who I am. And I actually get to just flick away the concerns about how I'm being perceived Uh and say, hey, I didn't make me. I'm just going to be me. And if it works for you, great. And if who I am doesn't work for you, great. So then to share my diagnosis with people, it became much easier and it provided me a lot of freedom in it because instead of wondering what do I share each 
part of the experience with, who do I share each part of the experience with? I just shared it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there was, I, I had a blog because, you know, people would call, people would email, and it became, became too much. Mm -hmm. So I just said, you know, I'll put it on a blog, and everybody can read it, and I'll make it public. And there were moments when I would finish typing and finish my editing, and I'd go to click publish, and I'm like, am I really going to tell everyone this? <laughs> <laughs> It's an incredibly personal thing, isn't it? I yeah. I dealt with it similarly in that I created a blog as well. Oh, so, wonderful. So whilst I didn't feel 100% comfortable uh, talking to people conversationally, face-to-face, -face, I thought it would be better to actually put, put my thoughts and feelings in writing. Uh, I enjoy writing. I used to do it as a job years ago. And for me, it was really cathartic to articulate what I was feeling and not just in terms of the emotional side but also the the diagnosis and mm. the treatment side of things because yeah. it's uh, a very rare disease with exceptional and extensive treatment it's hard to explain all that face to face to someone it's quite exhausting so oh, for me yeah. to write that down in bite-sized chapters so people could read it in their own time and digest it in their own time and get their version of understanding I th I found that really helpful and I'm still writing the blog at the moment I'm writing some of it retrospectively because when you're going through such events you don't always want to sit down and go okay right I'm going to write about this and I'm going to be really detailed mm. about it sometimes you just want to okay right I've had a check up today i just want to switch off and watch tv you know um but yeah I, I found writing a blog incredibly helpful and whilst it's not just to um tell people about what i've been through and my experience it's also to raise awareness of appendix cancer with it being rare the more awareness and research that is done into it the better because a lot of people are unfortunately uh, dismissed by their doctor that it's just irritable bowel syndrome which I may well have been for years um, and it's also misdiagnosed particularly with women it's often misdiagnosed mm. as ovarian cancer because the symptoms present very similarly and um, yeah to really get that awareness out there I think is absolutely crucial and hopefully the more people are aware of not just appendix cancer but any cancer symptoms if they're aware of symptoms and they know that something isn't right then it can give them hopefully some confidence with going to their doctor and getting checked out because as we all know the the sooner any kind of cancer is detected the better your chances of successful treatment and recovery are yeah and awareness I find cancer awareness to be in a bit of a catch-22 because a person who has never been diagnosed with cancer and doesn't have much cancer in their family, you know, I'll say for myself, you know, when I had an ailment, I wouldn't think, oh, no, this might be cancer. No. So why should I go get scanned for it? You know, am I going to go get scanned for every kind of cancer possible? Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, so people who haven't dealt with it just, you know, or, or I may say when I was diagnosed, I was like, what? How am I getting diagnosed with cancer? I'm not one of those people. Yeah, right. I'm fine. I'm healthy. I don't have issues. You know, I didn't realize that you don't have to have 
pre-existing obvious health issues to get diagnosed. And so to get people to recognize the importance of being aware of the existence of cancer and how common it is and to just keep in mind, you know, I, I think it's really hard for some folks to even want to let in the possibility yeah. that what they're dealing with could be cancer. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's what we all live in fear of, isn't it? Our own mortality. And to be faced with that head on or the prospect of even indulging in that thought process of, okay, I need to go to a doctor because it might be cancer. Mm. To even open yourself up to that is is understandably daunting, scary, and and embarrassing as well a lot of symptoms particularly with um the kind of cancer that i had or bowel cancer or gynecological cancers they're symptoms that we don't feel comfortable talking about you know anything to do with abnormal bleeding or abnormal bowel habits a lot of people are too embarrassed to see their doctor or even speak to their best friend about it so it's completely understandable but i think the more we and break down taboos about these subjects and open up discussions and normalize the the language that we use and not just discussing potential cancer symptoms but just general bodily functions we all go to the toilet you know all women have periods Mm -hmm. it's nothing to be uh squeamish or uh, queasy about it's 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 completely normal so to know when something isn't normal and what to do in those instances, I think we need to talk about it so much more. And I think it should be educated in schools so much more as well. Because I don't know how it is in the US, but in the UK, it's I think it's a case of one in two people will get cancer in their lifetime, mm. which is an incredibly scary statistic. And... It's sadly, it's a very common disease nowadays. Yeah, I th- last I knew it was one in four and it was becoming one in three. But now that I think about it, one in four was a number of years ago and it may be one in three by now. Right. It's very common. And I agree with you about breaking down barriers and norm- we're, we're really talking about breaking down barriers and normalizing the body. Yeah. Like we, I mean, heck, that's why you and I are here right now. It's one of the reasons to bring that awareness to people. And to keep having conversations about what's normal about the body. We dress a certain way. We put makeup on our face. Well, I mean, men generally don't. But, you know, it's very common for women to put makeup on their faces. Uh, we, we present in such a way that tries to suggest that we are not our bodies. Uh-huh. Our yep. bodies, exactly. We, we all use the bathroom. Um, we all have bowels, we all pass gas, we all burp. Here's the thing. Our body makes noises and our culture prefers those noises to not happen. Our culture tells us that the noises your body, just the noise your body just made, it's not okay. It shouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. So there's that shame around it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have, a, I have a permanent colostomy, and sometimes I will pass gas in front of a group of people. Mm-hmm. And Louise, sometimes it's a group of people that I do not want to pass gas in front of. What? Yeah. Because <laughs> maybe I'm, I'm <laughs> I've been in a quiet meeting, at a, you know, sitting around a table, not very happy with some people in a meeting with them, and I suddenly pass gas. Mm-hmm. And everyone hears it. And the, our culture says I should be ashamed, and they should be embarrassed and act like it didn't happen, mm. and this whole thing, right? So our bodies do what they do. Exactly, and, and it's completely normal. It, and it's completely normal. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you created your blog in part to create awareness around appendix cancer. Uh, is the blog public or is it private? It is public, yeah. So the uh, website address, if anyone wants to go and check it out, is yeah. my PMP experience wordpress.com and you'll so find some mypmp uh yes mypmp experience.wordpress.com i will make sure that is in your podcast description awesome <laughs> thank you so everyone can go to it you're welcome and something really spoke to me when you said the blog allowed people to digest the info in their own time mm. and that is so valuable because we can tell someone something in person and they just, they, they're just trying to process it and they don't have a response. And then people often feel they need to come up with some kind of response. <laughs> yeah. And the reality is they're overwhelmed. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they say things that might not be sensitive towards who they're speaking <laughs> to or they say certain <laughs> phrases that they think are right. I call them cancer cliches. And cancer cliches. And I yeah. know people say it from a good place, you know, well intentioned phrases and and uh, suggestions and that kind of thing, but I find it so annoying. I'm sorry. I, I know people are trying to just say the right thing a lot of the time. And it of course it's very hard for people to to understand. Um but I'm not brave, I'm not a warrior. I'm not inspirational. I'm just a person with bad cells. You know, we don't say it to people yeah. with diabetes or heart disease or someone who's, I don't know, had a stroke. We don't necessarily have that language connected to those conditions and those uh, diseases. But for some reason, there's this, like I say, quite um, misleading language around cancer that I don't think does anybody any favours. Um, and whilst, like I say, it's from a good place, you know, well-intentioned kind of language, it's it's not helpful all the time. When you're feeling really rubbish, you don't want somebody saying, you're amazing, because you're thinking, I can barely get out of bed this morning. <laughs> I'm not amazing. <laughs> I, I still <laughs> faint when I have a blood test. I'm not brave, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's... I. Yeah, people mean well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they certainly say some things that can be uh, difficult for sure, or just I say equally stunning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> when they're stunned by our diagnosis, we can often be stunned by their response. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and let's hope that awareness can kind of forward that conversation as well. You had said earlier about going into the meeting and in fifteen minutes coming to terms with what you're facing and 
seeing the how do you call it the the mucina mm, the, the mucin the mucin yes it's seeing like a jelly yeah seeing the mucin and how it all hit home uh, and, and it reminded me of when i had my uh sigmoidoscopy mm-hmm. with my doctor and i was awake for it and i saw on the screen this discoloration this discolored mass in my rectum and I think in that moment I would have been fine if I hadn't seen it Mm -hmm. it made it so real Mm. it looked abnormal I don't remember the colors all I remember is there were colors that stood out and there was a bit of a look to it that didn't look like the rest of my bowel and it was really tough to stomach when you're face to face uh, with it that reality yeah yeah but then going into surgery, I've gone into surgery for uh, um, the rectal cancer, which was quite an extensive surgery. Mm-hmm. And then a few years later, a couple of years later, I went in for a minor back surgery, which I guess, I mean, the recovery. I, they say it was minor, but I don't know how minor it was for me. And then I went in to have one of my liver lobe, part of one of my liver lobes resected when the recurrence came back. And each time I just... All three surgeries, I just went in like, all right, let's do it. Yeah. Like all the emotion and everything in my mind before I even know it just gets put aside. Like, it's great having you here, but right now you're going to ride in the back seat because I'm about to go into something huge and Mm. we don't know how these things are going to turn out. Did you feel, if you don't mind me asking, did you feel a sense of calm before your surgeries? I did. Mm. I, I felt completely powerless. Mm-hmm. And often in life, feeling powerless is when anger arises, and when uh, you know it's it's more easy to be triggered, and for me to say something in an attack form of communication when I'm feeling powerless. So maybe there's a different word I haven't found yet, or it's just a different context of powerlessness. But I felt. So powerless. I recognize that even in a minor surgery, a person can die. Uh-huh. The body can just respond to it. And I told my family members and friends that I love mm-hmm. them. And I went into surgery. And uh, yeah, how about you? Yeah, the same. It's There's the lead up to it. And it's a myriad of emotions from, like you say, anger to helplessness, to despair, to determination and I think when when it's just you and it's the only time that I use the the battle fighter language really is when you're face to face with actually having your your treatment having an operation and it's like you are going into battle and it's just you face to face with what you have to confront and I remember the morning of my surgery, there was quite a long walk from one end of the corridor where my uh, ward was down to the operating department. And I remember walking down there and it was almost like I'd done a meditation. It's hard to describe, but I was unnervingly calm and I was following the anaesthetist who was leading me down to theatre and my husband was with me. 
and we were just chatting about what we'd watch on TV that that last previous night. <laughs> and when you when I talk about it now, it's it's bizarre. Like I'm about to go into this surgery that could kill me. Um, I don't know what complications might arise from it. And I think, yeah, you just go into complete survivor mode. And I. I've spoken to other people who have had the same surgery and they've described exactly the same feeling of just that waking up that morning, walking down to the operating table and climbing onto the gurney and being calm and at peace. And I think it's that brutal acceptance of, I can't do anything about this. This is how it is. This is it. Um, And you're literally staring at your at your fate uh, it's yes yeah, quite profound going into battle mm. with a brutal acceptance of what's yeah. so mm. yeah i have never put it that way and that is very accurate mm. that's what it felt like it felt like i mean i've never walked into battle marched into battle but if i imagine it walking into the day of my surgery and laying down on the gurney, that's when I felt like a warrior. Yeah, 100%. Certainly, like, you know, recognizing that I had six months of chemotherapy to do after surgery and determining that with the post-surgery appointment with my oncologist, you know, that was devastating. Mm -hmm. Learned that I was going to have six months of rigorous chemotherapy. And it was only when I heard my son's voice that I was able to say, you know, as I'm imagining, how am I possibly going to do this? And I heard my little guy's voice and I said, oh, that's how I'm going to do this. Yeah. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And then as the months of chemo go on, it wasn't a warrior mode. It was a, what do I need to get through this treatment and then it became what do I need to get through this week it became what do I need to get through this day sometimes it was what do I need to do to get through this hour Mm -hmm. like that didn't feel like warrior mode but going into surgery yeah it's just like I'm going into battle and I might live and I might die or I might come out and I'll probably come out scarred right (laughs) yeah come out scarred for sure uh yeah yeah indeed hmm I mentioned chemo, and you mentioned a chemo bath. Mm, yeah. So was that, did the chemo bath happen during your surgery? After the surgery? How did, when did it happen? So the, the first uh, round of chemo, they do while you're on the operating table. So the retractors would have been pulling me open. Um, so I had a full mm-hmm. midline incision, a 12-inch incision um, from my just below my breastbone down to my pubic bone. And whilst um, basically once they've removed all the mucin and all of the what they regard as non-essential organs, they literally pour in this heat- heated chemotherapy fluid. And then I believe it was for... It's between 60 and 90 minutes that they literally roll you around 
like a piece of meat. So it's to allow this fluid mm. to secrete sure. all around the <laughs> abdomen. If anyone's eating while they're listening to this, I do apologise. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's literally rolling you around to, to allow this fluid to um, get into every nook and cranny. And then they drain out. They uh, clip you back up again. And then in the two days after my operation, they do the same procedure, but because obviously you're closed up by them, they pump you with the heated chemotherapy via a Tenkoth catheter in your lower abdomen. Um, so it's like a like a drain, and they basically pump oh, it through. Are you conscious for that? Yeah, yeah. And sorry, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, yeah, I was. Um, barely. I still had the effects of the anesthetic in my system. I mm -hmm. still had so many drugs going around my body and just my whole body and brain was in shock at the surgery I'd had. But I remember one, one of the rounds of chemotherapy and it was when I was moved from the high dependency unit to the general ward and they said okay we're gonna do a a high peck round and um i thought okay that's fine because i was kind of starting to come around and i kind of knew what was going on and where i was and i thought right okay well i'm back on the ward this is great this is a good step it means that i'm not classed as high uh highly uh what's the term they use um high dependency anymore so i'm safe enough to go back on the ward that's cool and then they began doing the chemotherapy and I guess the drugs from it mixed with what was still going on with my body and my mind. Um, I freaked out and I remember it was like hearing somebody else uh, screaming out. Uh, my husband had gone to get some dinner somewhere and it's just me and the nurse. And I just remember screaming out, um, help, help. I, I don't like this. I don't like this or words to that effect. And um they have to kind of uh, turn you slightly on your side to administer it and it was bizarre I, I didn't know what uh, or which way up I was lying on the bed I was being quite abusive I hate to say but I didn't know what was going on I didn't know what planet mm -hmm. I was on I was being quite abusive to one of the nurses uh, trying to push her away um and that was really traumatic actually um and I'm really thankful that after that, the, the surgeon kind of came on the ward and started doing his rounds and he checked my, my output and what was going on with my body. And he was happy that I wouldn't need any other rounds of chemotherapy, um, certainly not the high peck variety. And I remember being so, so relieved at that because I thought I can't cope with that. Um, the effects on my body as well, my vision was very blurred. So for about a week after, um, it was kind of like um, like my vision was bouncing, so I couldn't read anything. Um, mm. I had very jittery vision, um, and and the sickness as well was just I was just vomiting, just probably half a dozen times an hour, um, oh. just constant with the effects of obviously what they'd done um, to my to my bowels and my stomach area um coupled with the chemotherapy it was oh the sickness was just terrible i've never felt so ill in my life <laughs> it was horrible yeah. vomiting mm. just after surgery mm. yeah that had to hurt 
So I had a uh, what's called an NG tube and a bile bag. Mm-hmm. So the NG tube feeds from, um, I believe it's where your stomach connects to your small bowel. And it's a tube that comes up from there, comes out of your nose, and then it's connected to a, a pouch, a plastic pouch or bile bag. And it's to ensure that it's a fluid called chyme and it's basically the the waste and the product from your small bowel. Um, it comes up through your nose, through this tube and into a, a packet. Mm. And it's this really gross green fluid. Um, so I had that. That was put in during my surgery or before my surgery. And to allow your bowels and your stomach and everything to just settle. Um, and that was for about a week I had that connected and just to allow your system to settle and go back to some kind of normal state that was yeah that was just to allow things to to do what it needed to do and I was fed via a line in my neck so all my nutrition was through a central line Mm. in my neck um I couldn't eat anything reasonably normal until about I think it was about 13 days after my surgery and even then it was just a little bit of ice cream or or jelly the irony <laughs> i've got this jelly removed from my belly <laughs> and mm. one of the first things they give me is a pot of jelly <laughs> but um yeah so it takes a long long time for your body to to even realize what's happened to it and kind of adjust to some form of normality Mm. Yeah, I recall from my surgeries, my uh, digestive tract needing to wake up. Right. And and it takes a number of days before they can actually put, you know, first it's what, ice chips. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, maybe it's water. And you want to make sure the bowels wake up. But it sounds like yours took far longer to wake up. And so they needed to... Yeah, get the nutrients in through your neck. I mean, mm-hmm. mm, what a procedure if it wasn't extreme enough. And then you have a line coming out of your nose mm. to the bile bag. Nutrition through your neck. Yes, I had nutrition. I mean, had you had- <laughs> yeah, it was, I was kind of, uh, I felt like a, like a rag doll. Um, I was, yeah. I was incapable of, uh, getting out of bed uh, not just because of the massive wounds down my, my my midline but because I had all these tubes hanging out of me so for the first I guess for the first week and tubes were, were removed really on a a daily basis after my return to the normal ward um, as I started to show signs of my system balancing out I guess um, I had a catheter so I could urinate. I had mm-hmm. a, a a TPN line which was feeding me nutrition in via my neck. I had the uh, pain relief drugs, so I was on fentanyl. Um, initially morphine, and then I moved to fentanyl because morphine just didn't agree with me. Um, mm. I had that feeding through my central line in my neck as well. I had a epidural in my back. I had yeah. I had uh, a I had two chest drains to drain fluid out of that area, and I had four 
uh, abdominal drains as well. Louise. Oh my goodness, I've lost count. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a lot. <laughs> That's so much. Yeah. I have um, you, you a few photos and it's, yeah, I just look like this octopus in a <laughs> hospital gown. That's crazy. Yeah, like a... Uh like a cyborg uh -huh. I'm trying to I'm trying yeah. to think of on, on on star trek the next generation i don't know if you ever saw the show but yeah. there were the uh the borg is that what they were called right and they just had all these wires and tubes coming out of their bodies and oh like i remember when i woke up the huge scar again from the um sternum all the way down to the pelvic bone and then another one in my backside. and i had my colostomy pouch and i had a drain coming out and mm -hmm. i had my ivs and I was grossed out by my colostomy pouch. And, you know, I tried to, you know, I went at it like I'm going to do this and I would change it when they came in. And then after a while, like just honestly, like the smell of it combined with the medication I was on and how I already felt like my body had been somehow taken from me. Yeah. You feel brutalized, don't you? Yes. Yeah. And then to smell my own bowels and the way I, it was too much. And I just I looked at a nurse and I said, I'm sorry, I can't. I mean, I didn't have to do it, but I apologized to her for not being able to do it. And I could see you know, she wasn't, I got the impression she wasn't thrilled. Maybe it didn't phase her. Mm. You know, there's, there's a lot of beliefs that I had and clearly still have, or may I say memories that I have about how it went and I look back now and I can see that I projected a lot of that onto the people that were caring for me because I was under the influence of powerful medications and painkillers. Uh, my body was responding to, as you said, to being brutalized so accurate that I don't know what memories <laughs> are, are, are how, how accurate all of my memories are. You know, I think fear fear's a crazy thing and it manifests in different ways doesn't it yeah yeah and when i was in day two or three recovering probably just day two from recovering from surgery i asked the head nurse why they didn't want me to take morphine mm -hmm. and she looked at me and she said you can have morphine whenever you want it i mean inside of the prescription you know mm -hmm. uh, you know the um that may have been because the constant round the clock ativan actually made me anxious and I couldn't think clearly. Right. I've since had Ativan, you know, after treatments just to relax me, but having it around the clock just made me nuts, mm. made me mm. a bit paranoid, I think, and I, I was confused. Mm -hmm. I couldn't think clearly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, wow. You went through one heck of a procedure. Yeah, it's, um, it's a lot for your body and your brain to deal with. And I think, like you say, coupled with very strong incredibly strong opiates as well and the effects of the anesthetic and the chemotherapy drugs that were being pumped into me I think yeah my body just went into it reached saturation point and yeah I just remember one morning and I'd, I'd slept reasonably fine um and I remember one morning just sat there and my bed was next to uh a window and it's myself and three other patients on this particular ward and I just remember laying there thinking I can't move without assistance I I'm vomiting all the time I feel mm. literally like I've been hit by a truck 
this is as bad as it gets. This is rock bottom. And the only way from here is up. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to get out of this bed. And I'm going to have a holiday late this year. And (laughs) (laughs) I am going to go scuba diving again. And I had all these goals that were lined up. And I thought, and this is going to sound really cheesy, but I thought as long as I keep my eye on that horizon, and there's going to be bumps in the road, that's to be expected, but I have to keep pushing forward. And yeah, it was quite a pivotal moment for me. And it was just that realisation that I I can't allow this to get the better of me. I have to push forward. Mm. Yeah, how it always struck me was, you know, looking up is awful easy when there's nowhere further to fall. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where you were. And I appreciate you pointing to the things you wanted to achieve and the normalcy you wanted to return to because... Mm. It was having goals and wanting to accomplish things. And may, they may not have been big things, but you know, having goals, having tasks I wanted to accomplish soon, as well as you know, in the distant future, that kept me in a certain mindset. It had me thinking, well, it had me living in my mind as if all of these goals were attainable. It had me focused on achieving them so that there was a, I don't know, how do I want to put this? It became just a normal way of thinking that I'm going to achieve all of these things. And it's just a matter of getting there and doing these things in the immediate future. When I was doing chemo, uh, this would have been after my second diagnosis, a seven-month chemotherapy that I was doing. I was performing with my band. I had a four-piece like, you know, outlaw, honky-tonk country quartet, you know, right. playing songs that I wrote. Yeah, And uh, it was like an upright bass, myself and a guitar, a fiddle player and a guitar player. It, you know, it changed now and again. I'd pull different people in and out. But, you know, I'm in the bar playing the music. Uh, I had chemo the week before. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, if I do this, this, and this, then I will be able to go play that show and perform with the band. Now, uh-huh what I was pointing to and describing it all was just like, you know, it was just this wonderful, fun, raucous band. I'd play a bar, you know, fill the place and everyone would just be dancing and cheering and having a great time. You know, looking forward to that, I believe gave my experience of my treatments a different, it showed up differently. Showed up differently. And, mm. you know, now now we can, you know, reduce and minimize that to things like, you know, okay, I'm looking forward to having a friend come and visit in a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I want to write this next blog post and I'm really looking forward to writing that. It could be looking forward to seeing the next movie, but I felt like constantly looking forward to what I was going to do next just had me believe that I was going to get through this and I was going to be well. Yeah. I think it's so important to, to have things to look forward to 
but it's equally as important to there's a lot of talk about it's quite a buzzword at the moment but being in the present and just realizing when you have to admit not admit defeat I don't really like that term but to accept your limits and accept that okay today's not a great day but tomorrow I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna do what I want to do and just not allowing things to define you I think is so so important and a lot of the time it's easier said than done but Mm -hmm. you have to have goals and you have to have something positive to look forward to um and I don't think that's being unrealistic I think it's being very realistic and as long as you have that balance I think yeah I think you can really get through most things if you have that balanced perspective and that sheer determination as well I don't like being told what to do least of all by Mm. something I can't see in my body you know (laughs) and when we say you know don't let something define you why do we say that because we find it defining us Mm. and then we choose to not operate from that context very Mm. true yeah how have you um if you don't mind me asking have you suffered any kind of long-term effects from your treatment such as fatigue or anything like that so my last surgery was in 2013 Mm -hmm. and it was you know maybe four or five years before i could say like you know we have a lot of uh state parks where i live and there are these staircases that will go up along these gorges like these just cascading waterfalls that just go on and on and on and i used to have to stop quite frequently walking up them because they're so beautiful i would bring my son on walks to go see them and it was a number of years before i could walk to the top without stopping and i used to think that you know my body is not going to return to what it once was and now it's starting to feel like it is returning i just was uh listening to the podcast that was released this morning just in the last couple of days just you know taking the notes i i write i put timestamps down so people can look at the podcast and see if they, if they like a certain part they can say oh yeah go to 31 minutes and 15 seconds and you can hear this part i was telling you about right yeah. so i'm listening to all of that and i was telling the guest earlier in the spring that even though i'm 50 i feel like it's more accurate to say that i'm 60 and yet, even in that amount of time, I'm noticing, no, I feel like I really am bouncing back. I don't feel 60. But years ago, I felt about 10 years older. So stamina was difficult. Um, I don't have a gallbladder anymore because the part of my liver that was resected had the gallbladder on it. Mm-hmm. So I can't eat fatty foods without taking a hydrochloric acid pill. Mm-hmm. I take something called betaine HCL that helps me digest my food. Right. You know, and if I get heartburn, I'll take more hydrochloric acid because I know that what's going on is the food is like it's fermenting because it's not being digested. Or oh, and one time I like maybe last spring, I had a, a salad with avocado and olive oil and some cheese. And I woke up in the middle of the night in so much pain, I almost went to the hospital. Really? Because my gallbladder 
wasn't there to do its job. And so now this fatty food is in my intestinal tract, not digested. And, oh, it was, you know, eventually when I woke up and I could feel the pain come, the pain go, the pain come, the pain go. I'm like, okay, this is from what I ate. Mm. And I took some hydrochloric acid pills and, you know, the next day was just a day of recovering. Uh, that was tough. But how else has it changed my life? You know, having the colostomy. Mm-hmm. It took years to get comfortable uh, and allowing it to be seen, like going to the beach and swimming. Yeah. And having it just be seen. I used to take off the pouch and put on a big Band-Aid. Mm-hmm. And then I would be afraid, well, what if, like, my bowels move, you know, because <laughs> I flush them out every morning. I do something called irrigating. So I flush them out every morning. So for the next 24 hours, they don't really move. Okay. But like any human body, sometimes they do. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I would be so nervous wearing this, but now I just wear the pouch. and I let it blow in the wind. Yeah. Um, and you know what I'm thinking right now? I'm thinking, oh, I shouldn't share this because I'm speaking with a woman and that's ridiculous so i'm going to share anyway okay. so after the, my the, the um the, the sh- my erection bent uh to the left i now have what's called peronis because of the surgery or the radiation or i don't know what my erection bent to the left and then a few months later it straightened back out and then it bent again and i feel it's important that i do talk about that because it's something that i kept hidden for years because yeah. i was I felt it was inappropriate, but like, oh my goodness, I would, I want someone who's listening to this to say, oh my gosh, me too. Yeah, yeah. And I had a guest on a previous podcast who explained to me like there are exercises a person can do to correct that before Mm -hmm. it's too late. I think for me, the scar tissue that's built up is, well, I I don't know if it's permanent, but the exercises he recommended I was clear, you know, that wasn't going to work for me. <laughs> but so, yeah, it's had some, it's had some lasting effects uh, that don't stop me from living my life. But it took a long time. The biggest thing was endurance, was being will, you know, being able to, being able to uh, not lose, how would I say it? The biggest thing was endurance and not getting fatigued mm-hmm. from doing uh, mm. you know, just the slightest thing. After my first diagnosis, when all the treatment and all the chemotherapy was done, I went to a physical therapist because I had to do tons of tests. Mm-hmm. I went to a cardiologist, a pulmonologist, went back to the cardiologist, back to the pulmonologist, had all kinds of tests to finally determine that my entire system had just atrophied. Okay. My body had acclimated to my lifestyle, which was very sedentary. Mm-hmm. So I went to the physical therapist and I would do uh um I would do like curls and tricep work and squats with large rubber bands. Yeah. Like a cartoon because yeah. that's all I could do. And so building up my strength and my endurance. Yeah. Getting your body moving and knowing what's safe to do, I think, is really important. And having a a physio guide you through that, I think that that the post-operative 
recovery, certainly in the UK, is something that is underestimated and slightly overlooked in the, okay, you have your treatment, off you go. And then you're kind of left to fend for yourself and then decide what what and whether you need any particular assistance. So I think having a physiotherapist is, is crucial, knowing that you need to heal and you need to get stronger and you need to get moving. Um, and you don't need to gym, you know, become a gym bunny and start leaping about in lycra, but just movement and activating certain muscles and joints is, is really important, particularly to avoid anything like DVT, um, anything like that. What's that? Uh, sorry, deep vein thrombosis. So to assist any kind of circulatory um, kind of issues that might arise. Mm. So um, DVT. So if you're laying yeah, in bed I... for a long time and that kind of thing, it's not good for your circulation. Gotcha. I see. Yeah, I find that post-operative treatment is overlooked here mm-hmm. as well, here in the U.S. Uh, I have never put it so succinctly as you just did and i think it need i believe that it needs to be standard Mm. when your treatment's over you need to immediately be given the option you need to be assessed and have it determined if you need additional care uh there's chemotherapy treatment and recovering from that is a heck of a process and i've had doctors say when I asked my doctor, you know, what can I do now with this, now that I've gone through all this chemo, you know, the doc said, I can refer you to a nutritionist. I was like, no. <laughs> I mean, like, I've just been poisoned for six months yeah. to save my life. I get that. But, like, what about getting the poison out? And they're like, well, your body metastasizes it, and, you know, it's 72 hours. And I'm like, okay, we are on two completely different pages here. We're living in two different worlds right now. Yeah, it's a very generalised approach I've found and everyone's cancer is unique, everyone's way of reacting to treatment is unique and everyone's recovery is very unique and whilst it takes time and a lot of uh, research really to determine what people need, I think it's it goes without saying that it's a crucial part of, of someone's experience, not just with cancer but any major surgery or treatment. I think the recovery process is plays a huge part in where you go in your life from there on uh, physically and mentally yeah i agree what kind of barriers did you have after treatment so i was fortunate enough to have a low-grade type of appendix cancer so because i had low grade it wasn't deemed necessary necessary for me to have systemic chemotherapy after my Mm. operation which I was very glad uh, to hear, um, which meant that my my recovery was quite linear. I was able to just rest, take my time, discover what worked for me and what didn't work for me. I had a physio appointed to me um, for my general practitioner um, and I went to see them a few times. They gave me a few exercises to do just to strengthen my core area. Yeah. And just gentle, I guess, Pilates style stretches and exercises, which I found really beneficial. And it was also just lots of walking. 
So walking for me was a massive part of increasing my fitness, increasing my strength. It's great for my mental well-being. So I'm quite lucky where I live out in the countryside in the UK. And so I can step up my front door and I can, I can just go walking down country lanes mm. and fields and I've got lots of wildlife around me. So lots of fresh air. So I'm very lucky in that respect. And I'm yeah, in no doubt at all that that played uh, a big part in um, helping my recovery. But yeah, I, I didn't need any systemic, systemic follow-up chemo. Uh, so it's just a case of playing things by ear, really. And just like you, the fatigue... Uh, was a a big stumbling block and it still is to this day so my surgery was in December 2014 and I still suffer from the effects of my surgery in terms of fatigue brain fog and just needing to take my time with things every now and then some days I'm fine so I can have one day where I can barely get out of bed and mm, my, my really? yeah, my cognitive ability is limited. Um, next day, I can go out and run a ten k, and it's mm. it's crazy. There are no no rules to it, and it's it's taken a lot of effort and acceptance to understand what I can and can't do, and that there's nothing that is uh, a particular driving force or there's no particular reason why I feel a certain way on certain days. But it's, um, yeah, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome in June 2017 because I was getting mm. immensely frustrated with having such a an erratic kind of pattern going on with it. And yeah. uh, so I, I sought some advice and a, um, a specialist doctor not far from where I live, uh, yeah, diagnosed me with standard chronic fatigue syndrome. And I, I guess I didn't want the label of a, a diagnosis, but I just wanted some clarity and some form of, okay, that's what I've got. I'm not going to let that define me, just like the cancer, I didn't let that define me. But I think when you know what you have and you understand what your body is going through, Whenever your body body responds a certain way or behaves a certain way, whether it be through pain or fatigue, it's trying to tell you something. And if I mm-hmm. if I feel I understand what my body is trying to tell me, then I then know what I should or shouldn't do. Um, and I can be a bit more easier on myself, I guess. So important. Mm. So important. It's it's difficult. I. Th- found it difficult to accept the new normal Mm. and I think one of the biggest struggles in cancer survivorship is recognizing what our thoughts and beliefs were you know for example I thought that my body would be back to normal or it wouldn't be back to normal but it sure as heck wouldn't be this it wouldn't be chronic fatigue syndrome Mm. and and then to have to actually let in and be with that my body now has this new normal uh-huh. which doesn't fit into the cultural design and expectation mm. and my own personal expectations or 
you know, my wishes for the life I want to live. You know, you said return to scuba diving and such things. You know, I imagine you might schedule a scuba diving trip and then wake up in the morning and look at your husband and go, I'm sorry, this is not happening mm -hmm. today. Yeah, spot on. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and then what's next, you know, is for me is to, you know, first there's the upset, but then there's to look beneath the upset and see the source of it, you know, the disappointment and to, to let the emotion arise mm. and find my way. I wouldn't say so much through it. I was about to say that, but I just find my way into it, just sinking into it. And otherwise, you know, I try to just be upset and push it away and then it will show up at a different time versus actually letting it all come out and letting my feelings be felt. And, you know, not my thinking be thought, but let the feeling actually just be felt. And if there's tears, let the tears be shed. You know, then uh, if there's just, just sadness and disappointment, like to not step over that, you know, because it's, it's what's there. And I feel like our... Sure, our thoughts, but yeah, our feelings and emotions, they are really our access to uh, to freedom, perhaps mm. I could say, mm. by letting us know wh where we are with our own existence. Sure, yeah. I think the more we try and fight it, the the more counterproductive it is. And I think I fought with my own thoughts and my own feelings for a long, long time, not just with the cancer, but through the frustrations of fatigue and I guess um, trying to constantly battle my limitations and the side effects of my surgery. And it's draining. That in itself is exhausting, which makes the fatigue even worse. And it's, it's like a vicious circle. And the the moment of clarity for me was when I when I accepted that I needed to have some form of therapy and that was in late 2018 so a long time after my treatment mm -hmm. and I began a form of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy and that was a big big game changer because oh, it made yeah. me realize okay this isn't my fault and this is how it is. And whilst it's nothing uh, too, too technical, I guess, about that particular form of therapy, it's allowed me to be a lot easier on myself and to accept and understand why things are the way they are. And that you just have to enjoy the here and now. You can't ruminate over the past too much. And you can't speculate over the future too much because it doesn't serve you well. And that you just have to be kind to yourself and employ compassion towards yourself and others. And yeah, that's been a massive game changer for me. And it's still it's a learning process. <laughs> uh, no, it's no small feat, Louise. Uh, mm. It was in 20, around 2018 that I started seeing a therapist. Uh, for an issue that had come up for me and accepting me exactly as I am. That's no small feat. Mm. And being kind to myself, you know, and recognizing that the way I spoke to myself, like if anybody spoke to me that way, I wouldn't have them in my life. Right. 
and it really takes something to even be willing to look at what we're accepting, mm -hmm. to look at our own thinking about ourselves, to look at our own you know, resistance to what we're experiencing. So I commend you for that. It's, 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 not, a, it's not an easy thing. Mm -hmm. And when we are compassionate with ourselves, or may I say I have found that the more compassionate I am with myself, the more I soften to myself, mm -hmm. the more I soften to the world. Yeah. And the more space I have for other people to be human, mm. Mm. you know, to do the things that I wish, you know, were different. Because we are just all human at the end of the day <laughs> and people make mistakes, people annoy you and you know we're, we're all just trying to go about our business and sometimes you kind of just have to hold your hands up and say okay I don't agree with you or I don't condone your behavior but you've got your reasons I'm sure and it's just the way it goes sometimes you know yeah <laughs> yeah yep exactly this is not life happening the wrong way this is life actually happening the way life happens yeah absolutely <laughs> so you had said that you now experience uh brain fog and so do you believe that's a result of the the chemo baths that you had to do i think so i think uh yeah i think it's a a combination of the the chemotherapy and and also menopause as well i think that can't mm. be underestimated okay and how many of those chemo baths did you have in total uh three i think yeah it was quite shocking to hear for me to hear your description of being so out of it that you were getting aggressive with one of the nurses. Mm. So mm. that's how it affected you each time you did the chemo, the chemo mm. bath, it would change your uh, state of mind? Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was a mixture of the, the chemotherapy drugs with the painkillers that I was taking. Mm. And it was one of the reasons they switched me from morphine to fentanyl because I was in a state of uh, delirium, particularly with the morphine. I didn't have any active hallucinations, but I really, yeah, I didn't know what was going on. Um, I remember them, the team moved me from intensive care to high dependency, and I thought I was being kidnapped. And all I could oh. feel were these hands on me trying to move me out of bed, and I was freaking out. And I remember one of the nurses getting right up in my face. And she was saying, Louise. And she was just shouting my name over and over. She said, it's okay. We're just moving you. And and I was trying to tell this nurse that, I don't think you understand. I've had this big operation and you can't move me. And I was, yeah, I was so out mm. of it. And... Uh, I remember this nurse's face was right up against mine and I could see three, she had three eyes at that moment in time. I saw yeah. th three eyes and they were moving around her face. 
and it was oh it was my. scary as anything um but she was absolutely lovely this particular nurse she <laughs> she took my hand and i hem- i remember her getting a, a big black marker pen and she put this circle she drew the circle between in the, the crook of my hand between my thumb and my forefinger and she said this is your reality anchor and if you feel out of control or if you feel like you're about to freak out because you're well within your rights to because you're on high medication you've just had a big operation this is all very scary just look at this circle on your hand and this is your reality anchor and if you can see the circle then everything's going to be okay and it was yeah I just remember this dot on my hand and I even though I was obviously having bed baths and things like that I wanted that on my hand so if I did freak out if I did feel panicked or whatever emotion I was feeling if it was some kind of uh, yeah if I was about to go down a, a dark path mentally then this dot on my hand would just rein me back in that okay everything's cool everything's cool it worked for you yeah mm, massively yeah it's so simple but so effective and I'm, I'm so grateful for that nurse to to Aww. have that foresight to think okay I can do this little thing for her and it's going to help her. I wonder how she knew. Mm. I wonder if that was part of her training or just who she was as a person. I'm not sure. I think you have to be a certain person to to go into the medical profession full stop. But it's the what I would class in the medical, medical team hierarchy, if you like, that that middle ground, that nurse... Uh, to we have healthcare assistants in this country so like auxiliary nurses and it's certainly within that level that they deal with the day-to-day rubbish that's thrown at them they must get so so much abuse off people they Mm. you name it they have to do it and they have to get on with it and without judgment without showing their own emotions and I have nothing but respect and admiration for anyone who goes into that profession because you yeah you're you're a hero at the end of the day it's absolutely commendable i'm with you there uh mm. you know we as humans react you know an infinite number of ways to health issues especially when our lives are in danger mm. and then put a and give us treatments and what they have to deal with you know they're it's it's a it's kind of an altered reality yeah absolutely and it is phenomenal when i think about the doctors and nurses that work in oncology and surgery and 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 many other fields where it's just wow it's it's incredible what they do every day yeah every day yeah I've, I've spoken about it to a few people and and some people's uh reaction to that is oh but they're just doing their job they're just doing their job they're, they're doing what they get paid for no no it goes beyond that to have that connection with someone you've never met before and to completely take yourself not emotionally out of the situation but to just get on with the job but to employ that level of empathy 
and just have just have that care and notion um i think is yeah you have to be a certain type of person i think definitely absolutely absolutely it's mm. <laughs> it's very different from many jobs <laughs> yeah oh yeah <laughs> you're you're a unique individual when they removed the mucin from your body do you know what the process was to do that uh i think it without saying nah, i mean crass, it's, it's the I question i'm asking is not you know i'm just opening it up for <laughs> no not at all <laughs> no i think it was just a case of them just getting in there and taking it out um with their mm. hands and i think some areas it depends where the mucin is located so like i said before it it, it latches on to organs and depending on whereabouts it's latched onto and also the amount of mucin that's there i think it can be tricky so if it's near a main uh blood vessel so a main artery it can be really difficult and dangerous to get to um but from what i can gather uh where certainly the majority of my mucin was located it was just a case of getting in there and shuffling it out okay. literally yeah. just getting handfuls of it uh which is really gross <laughs> but um it's um it's a real yeah when you think about it it's crazy my my operation was actually filmed uh for research purposes uh when i went for my first consultation with my surgeon he uh, gave me the list of dates for when I could choose to have the surgery and the date that I chose was the day of a international conference um, at Basingstoke and North Hampshire Hospital. So the peritoneal malignancy unit as it's known, so the unit that treats appendix cancer at Basingstoke Hospital, it is, it's a world leading unit um, which is amazing and they were hosting a conference for surgeons from all around the world to come and learn more about the techniques uh, involved in the surgery for appendix cancer and pseudomyxoma peritoneal. And yeah, they were going to uh, stream a live operation in the conference room. And the day of my operation <laughs> happened to be when they'd be doing that. So uh, yeah, I gave my consent. And I've always had the uh, the view of if it helps uh, research and studies and development into this cancer, so be it. If I want, if I can be part of helping that, I'm all for that. So I had no problems at all with agreeing to that. And uh, so yeah, my operation was broadcast in a conference room to a few hundred delegates, and uh, yeah, which is weird to think about that. So. Uh, and I think some of the the nurses from my ward, uh, they went and viewed some of the operation as well, which is really cool. So they they saw me from being mm. admitted to hospital uh, through to being discharged and also saw my operation played out on a widescreen television. <laughs> I think it's wonderful that you allowed yourself to be filmed and everyone at the conference yeah could see i requested this that they i said you know as long as you get my best side i don't mind <laughs> <laughs> so i had actually wanted to ask you about choosing yeah. the dates like <laughs> in the 15 minutes of being told yes 
you have appendix cancer, and these are all the organs you have to take out. And so what date works for you? Isn't it amazing? It's like when we are basically stepping into, we're stepping into mm. their world. This is, this, this is mm -hmm. their arena. And then they look at you and say, which date works for you? Like exactly. we're scheduling <laughs> dinner. <laughs> it's, it's so bizarre. It really is. And I think you have to employ a, I've got quite a, a dark sense of humor anyway, which has served me quite well throughout all this. And uh, you have to, don't you? <laughs> so yeah, there, there were quite a few laughs in the beating as well, despite it being a very uh, stressful, traumatic meeting. It was also quite humorous as well. Yeah, in my mind, you have to laugh because you're just releasing so much that the tears don't even mm. cover all the bases, mm. you know, and the anger and the and the physical expression and movement of the body to get it out of you doesn't cover it. And laughter will do it as well. I know that people I remember people giving me some very odd looks with the things I would say and they just be like, are you? Like, no, I'm being silly. You don't have to, like, you know, just uh, just being so absurd. I wrote a song about uh, getting diagnosed with cancer for a second time. And just like, you know, just in the song, I just sang every difficult thing that happened to me within a 10-month period or whatever. <laughs> it was just, uh, <laughs> it was to make people laugh. But the odd thing was, it wasn't, the, you know, the situation wasn't no, particularly funny. <laughs> But but because I was laughing about it and being silly, it's like, yeah, what are you so going to do? do a context. I'm going to move on. Or... <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh. So you had mentioned earlier as well, like the supporting of others and answering their questions, like with your mm -hmm. mom and your mother-in-law. And it's such a common thing that I hear people say, guests tell me, I mean, people before the podcast, people would tell me, but so many guests talk about like, how we find ourselves supporting mm. our loved ones. It's like sometimes for me, it seemed like maybe I'm happier being the one with the diagnosis in moments than I am being the person who's hearing about it and being outside of it, being, you know, my siblings, my parents, my dear friends, you know, other relatives, uh, how they're outside of that. And it's, very common for us to support others as we move through this. I completely agree. I, I think if the, the boot had been on the other foot with my husband, I don't know how I would have coped with it. Mm. Um, when you're laying there in the hospital bed or the chemo chair or just having a rough day at home in your recovery it's just you you can't see yourself um but they can see you they can see every tube coming out of you they can see you know the blood and quite literally the guts and everything else and it's yeah I wouldn't wish that on anybody at all um my husband was a complete rock throughout the whole thing and then still is bless him mm. um you know he's, he's incredible and I've yeah I never cease to be amazed by his you know compassion and patience because <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a good ah, patient <laughs> like I say I, I don't like being told <laughs> what to do and I'm not good with medical procedures but he was there throughout the whole thing and he's come to 
all appointments with me apart from most recently due to covid he can't come to appointments and scans with me but it's um yeah it's incredible right. really to think that he's witnessed it all and it's yeah he was there when i had my um anesthetic put into my arm and it's yeah it's crazy to think that i climbed onto that gurney and they put the tourniquet on and they said, okay, you're going to feel like you've had a few gin and tonics. You're going to feel a bit spaced out. And and they started to inject me. Mm. And um, they were so kind at, at the hospital. They allowed David, my husband, to to walk down to the operating preparation room with me. Um, and he held my hand. And I remember looking up. So he was behind me. I was laying down. And I remember just tilting my head backwards. And I thought, right... If I don't make it out of this, if this is the end, and if this is the last thing I see, I want it to be his smiling face. And so when they mm. put that needle in my arm and they said, okay, you're going to feel like you've had a few gin and tonics, I thought, right, I'm going to make a joke out of this. And I can't quite remember what I said now because <laughs> it took effect quite quickly. Um, but I made a joke, and I remember just tilting my head back, and, and he started laughing. He was, he was crying his eyes out, bless him. But he, he laughed, and I thought, okay, yeah, I'm ready to go now. And it's so, yeah, when you yeah. look back, you think, how on earth, like, yeah, how on earth did he deal with that? I remember one of the nurses who escorted him back to uh, the ward. Uh, he had to collect my belongings and and such like, and... Um, one of the nurses who who sort of helped him, she gave him a big hug and and looked after him. Um, She's called Naomi, a very glamorous young nurse as well, so, <laughs> which I think helped David a little bit. We joke about it now. Yeah, she's a very very fit little nurse, <laughs> but um, but she was adorable. She was great, and she yeah, she looked after David and took him back to the to the ward and helped me pack my bag and that kind of thing and it's um it's just those little things um just the waiting during my surgery my uh I had a team of surgeons so my surgery is about eight and a half hours long and they worked in like a tag team and at the end of each kind of two to three hour stint they made a phone call to David to advise him on how my surgery was going um just basically give him an update just to to give him peace of mind um and uh mm -hmm. yeah i know his way of coping with it was to go back to the um uh apartment he was staying in and he'd bought his playstation with him and he's playing fifa on the playstation just to keep his mind off of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, um yeah it's, yes. it's crazy to think about it really the hospital at basinstake they um I don't believe they're doing it at the moment due to COVID, but certainly when I had my operation, uh, they allow one immediate relative to stay in the nurse's accommodation. So they have like a block of apartments and they allow immediate family of people who are having the um, cytoreductive surgery, as it's known, and HIPEC. They allow one immediate member of the family to stay there for the duration, which is absolutely great. And they stay there for free. Mm. Oh, that's mm. so wonderful. So it's so thoughtful and yeah. necessary. Yeah, it's wonderful that there's the awareness that 
you need support. This isn't yeah, something we do on absolutely. our own. Yeah. When you say high peck, you've said it a couple of times and I've assumed I knew Sorry, it. yeah. There's, there's so much terminology involved for this. <laughs> <laughs> you went through uh, a lot. So the, the actual surgery that I had is known as cytoreductive surgery. And it's also known as the mother of all surgeries due to the nature of it being so, yeah, so extensive. Um, and the chemotherapy involved is HIPEC. So it's an abbreviation of heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy. Mm. Gotcha. And it's called the mother of all surgeries, you said, because of uh, the Because price? of the, just the extent of the surgery, because they're removing just the extent what? of the surgery. So the, yeah. Okay, that makes more um, sense to me. So yeah. it's, yeah, because there's so much involved. Oh, maybe you said it's the most extensive surgery. And I Sorry, thought you said expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, no, it's okay. I'm like, that's an odd reason to, no, yeah, the mother of all surgeries because they're really opening you up, taking out yeah. so many organs and then doing mm, this chemo. Yeah. So I was fortunate enough to not have any uh, bowel involvement. So I didn't need any colon removing. I okay. didn't need anything like that. Good, um, good. But uh, some people do. And in those instances, it can be a 12 to 16 hour operation. So I, I in the <sighs> grander scheme of things, compared to other people that I've spoken to, who have had the same surgery, I got off quite lightly. Mine was a, quite a cut and shut case. So I'm... I'm very uh, aware mm. that I had a reasonably straightforward treatment and recovery. Yeah, yeah. inside of the context of the mother yeah. of all surgeries, <laughs> you had a more yeah, mild version. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a thing to be told. You're having the mother of all surgeries. That doesn't sound like something it's, you want to yeah, step into. It's pretty big. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But you... Your bowels are intact. You did not have to have any no. bowel removal. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. It's it's created long-term mm. side effects in terms of my bowel's function, however. So whilst I didn't have any bowel involvement, the, the surgery involves a lot of uh, sifting around movement and uh, delving around the area. So your bowels are pulled around a lot. And... It took a while for yeah. them to settle after the surgery, and I still rely on uh, laxatives to enable me to, to go to the toilet properly, um, which is quite literally a pain in the butt. Uh, but it's it's a <laughs> yeah it's a it's a side effect that I can deal with and that I've learned to deal with, and I know what works for me now. Yeah. And yeah, I just. I don't cut any particular foods out of my diet, but I'm mindful to to go easy on my system and to stay hydrated. Uh, exercise is a big mm. factor in uh, keeping or managing my digestion. Um, so I see a personal trainer each month and I, I'm lucky enough to have a, a little space at home with some gym equipment. And I do weight training, I go running, and yeah, it's it's really, Great. really helped my recovery. It's been a, a massive, massive part. 
Mm. So this mm. amount of self-care is quite necessary and mm. uh, effective. Yeah, so it affected your bowels, it, uh, the surgery. and Well, let's just say the whole kit and caboodle. It, it just left your bowels not functioning the yeah, way they I, once I, used to. The way I put it is they had a sulk. <laughs> they, 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 they kind of objected <laughs> to being uh, pulled around for a few hours. And, they're, yeah, they're still sulking a few years down the line. Um, mm. But it's... Um, yeah, I think some of the, certainly the the pains and discomfort that I get with my digestion is as a consequence of the surgery, I've been left with acres and acres of adhesions and scar tissue. And so there's a lot of uh, kinks and little quirks with my digestive system now. And uh, yeah, it shows. So digestion isn't easy for me I still get um quite bad reflux and like I say I have to rely on laxative to go to the loo um but it's yeah it's to be expected and it's a very common side effect from the surgery okay yeah mm. seems reasonable seems uh, um yeah. manageable may I say you and I've really got inspired in this conversation I am thinking now, as we're speaking, the back of my mind is wandering about having a caregiver's podcast. You know, I am going to have my former wife on the podcast to talk about all the things that we were not prepared yeah. for as a couple. <laughs> <laughs> and we can laugh hysterically at like how we thought we were doing so well in managing it. <laughs> but I would love to have a few caregivers as a group, you know, and, and if it works for a podcast, I don't know, but I really want to provide that angle as well. I want caregivers to be able to talk about what it took for them to mm. be the rock mm. for their partner, um, what kind of support they got, or how they did it themselves and what it took to find their way through it. Now, there are some folks that are just yeah. wired that way, right? But I'm really interested in the folks who who it took something to provide it and I want to know because I'm sure there are scads of people who would love any you know recommendations any ideas any, any you know knowledge of what others did to find their way through because it's got to be I really think it would be really beneficial for for caregivers and immediate relatives and friends to listen to just to not only learn of other people's coping strategies but also to know that they're not alone I think when someone's diagnosed with cancer the there's the ripple effect I call it so it's not just the person with cancer who's affected by it their spouses are their children are their grandparents are that it, it ripples outwards and it affects everybody and I think that can sometimes be forgotten and um mm -hmm. yeah I think there's a whole new, like you say, there's a whole new topic there to be to be discussed, and maybe it's something that just isn't spoken about enough. People think, okay, yeah, we're fine, we're family, we're friends, we're close, we're just getting on with it. And sometimes, even my closest friends, I've not opened up to about certain things, and it's not through fear of. 
judgment or anything like that but I think sometimes you feel like you don't want to burden people and you when you're with your mm-hmm. friends you want to have fun you know you want to forget about the bad things in life um so if someone's asked you know right. are you okay yeah I'm fine yeah I've had a little bit of a tummy ache today but I'm fine or I've had a bit of fatigue today but yeah let's go out you know and I think to to have that connection would be uh, yeah would be really helpful just to learn of other people's experiences of dealing with people who have dealt with cancer yeah yeah yeah, for sure because there are days you might happily share with a friend but other times you just want to relax and laugh and have fun and not talk Mm. about it not bring it up just because it's there needs to be some balance and i mean my hope is that caregivers and friends and family will listen to these podcasts not just the caregiver podcast because like you said one person gets the Mm -hmm. diagnosis but the family has you know Mm -hmm. a cancer diagnosis and the community has a cancer diagnosis and each time they listen to one of these podcasts you know there's some insight into what it's like and what makes a difference and the more people the more insight people get into what it's like for those of us who have had cancer Mm. to navigate it the more supportive they can be when people in their life are dealing with it Mm -hmm. uh i would think the more prepared Mm. they could be for when the next health issue arises in their own life and it might not be cancer and let's hope it's not people may have a diagnosis of something that Mm. is not Mm life-threatening but still you know listening to these conversations could make a difference in their own awareness and their own approach to working with medical staff because for lots of folks you know they don't Mm. have experience dealing with a doctor when it comes to a health crisis you know they go to the doc and they say what should i do and then they get woke into the reality that mm-hmm. well there are choices which one would you like yeah. to do and you're like wait what <laughs> <laughs> i have some say in this so yeah i think it, i'm looking forward to doing a, a caregiver I think that'd podcast be great. yeah i really do i think it would help people to know that they're not they're not alone and to to understand that it's it's affecting them they're not just on the outside kind of um, on the fringe of what's happening they are involved um right and I, i've always said to my husband um that you will never understand i don't want you to understand because it would mean that you would have had to have you know gone through cancer and like i say i would not wish that on anyone yeah. um but you will never understand but you can only ever be understanding and i think as long as he has yeah. an understanding of what i'm trying to go through or what I've been through, then yeah, you can work through it. And it's it's not easy. It's it's a test of any relationship. No. Um and if you could come out the other side of it, in a way I would say it's made us stronger in some respects. We're a lot more open with how we're feeling. So if we wake up and we're either of us are feeling anxious, we will say, Look, uh, there's no particular reason. But if I bite your head off today, 
it's because I'm feeling really, really anxious or really low. It's not you. <laughs> so it's uh, that's Louise. That's so important. Being that's open beautiful and honest. And yeah, it's There's, not all hearts uh, and flowers, but no relationship is. So I think you 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 have to no just take responsibility is. for um, not just your own emotions, but be considerate of the other person's especially when you're living together 24 7 it's tough and of course there's going to be conflict and arguments and words said that mm-hmm. you don't mean but it's yeah it's it's your your perspective and your honesty i think is key to getting through that yeah letting your spouse know i'm feeling anxious and i'm concerned mm-hmm. i might bite your head off that's so valuable. Mm. That's so and powerful. It's not their fault. Because there's, it's not them. Mm. Yeah. And I, I'm in a space right now where I feel like I might get triggered and I may react, uh-huh. and it's not you. I mean, something as simple as that can have a person see it happening and think to themselves. Well, the first thought is grr, yeah. right? <laughs> An upset. Then the next moment, it's like, oh wait, she told me or he told me that they're in this space. I can. I yeah. can hold space for and that. And just allow for that person to get through that difficult day and know that it's the situation that is the problem. It's nothing they've said or it's nothing, you know, it's not because they've not picked up their dirty socks off the floor. <laughs> it's not due to that. It's just because they're having a bad day and it will be better tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, or if, if, if I bite your head off because you left your dirty socks on the floor... You know me well enough. You know, I gave you a heads up how I was feeling and you know me well enough. I don't care about <laughs> yeah. the socks on the floor. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> my mind is just looking for yeah. anything it can grab onto yeah. to express the upset. Exactly. It's not you. Yeah. It's me. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> you had mentioned um, mm-hmm. Mr. Cecil, your doctor. And I noticed, I perked mm-hmm. up when you said Mr. Because... I'm accustomed to people saying doctor. And is that a Louise thing or is that a British thing to Um, say mister? I'm I'm not sure. I I wasn't aware that in the US that you you call everyone doctor. Uh, Anyone who, in the UK, anyone who is a surgeon or a consultant is known as mister or missus. So they're not doctor. So once they get to surgeon level... They're a consultant and they're, yeah, they're not, they're still a doctor, obviously, because they've done the training and the background, but you refer to them as Mr. or Mrs. So I've got Mr. Cecil, Mr. Moran, Mm. Mr. Mohammed, um, on my team. Yeah. That's interesting. (laughs) So why that, yeah, and why it struck me is because I often recommend to clients to request or to ask the doctor, I recommend to clients that they ask the doctor if they can call the doctor right. by their first name. And the reason is because when we refer to someone with their title, when we say Dr. Cecil, it suddenly creates a hierarchy with language. You know, language mm-hmm. is so powerful. Our speaking creates the world we live in. And when we say doctor, we create a hierarchy. And so when a doctor gives a patient permission to call them by their first name, it allows the patient 
to speak to a fellow human being, someone that they feel they're on a level playing field with. And it often allows the patient to speak more freely about mm -hmm. their own needs and to ask more questions versus reporting to an authority. So I love that the doctors are called Mr. and Mrs. Um, it's so important to feel comfortable speaking to the physicians we are partnering with mm. to save our life. Mm. And it's very common, even in a life-threatening situation, to speak to a doctor as an authority and mm -hmm. therefore refrain from saying certain things. I'm very things. lucky in that my surgeons, so for instance, when I go to see Mr. Cecil for whatever reason, uh, I don't call him Tom to his face, but when I refer to him to family and friends, he's known as Tom, Tom Cecil. And I've had a lot of people say to me that that's completely different to their experiences of dealing with surgeons in the UK. Um, there's often, as you say, a hierarchy. And I think that extends to a whole new level. I don't know if it's a UK thing, but surgeons in the UK do tend to be quite detached and businesslike and impersonal. So when I've had dealings with other surgeons before, um, unrelated to um, pseudomyxoma, they can be quite um, lacking in empathy. Uh, they can be very, right, this is what we're doing. You listen to me, I have the final say, that kind of tone. Mm. Whereas the team who have looked after me at Basingstoke Hospital, they're so personable and they're so empathetic and they're so on your level. And I think when you're dealing with something like you say, that is so overwhelming to understand and to, to navigate, it helps massively to have somebody who you feel is not just on your level, but on your side and that you're going through the whole experience together. Um, I have annual scans to uh, check that my cancer hasn't come back. So I've had a scan every year for the past five years. And um, when I've gone down for those scans, my husband David has come with me. And he's often remarked that whilst I've been through having the scan, one of my surgeons has walked past and they've recognised him and they've said hi and stopped, you know, how's she doing? Mm. How's she, you know, is she okay? And this is a surgery I had six years ago now and they recognised my husband from when he was around the hospital and that's pretty oh. exceptional. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a really it special is. place actually. I call it amazing steak rather than basin steak. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. I feel similarly about um, my doctor, uh, Nancy Kemeny, down at Memorial Sloan mm -hmm. Kettering Hospital. I live, like you, about four hours from that hospital. It's in New York City, and it's one of the you know biggest cancer hospitals. It's among the biggest cancer hospitals in our country. And I feel very fortunate to be there. And with, I think I saw four different oncologists, a B 
before I worked with her between my two diagnoses. And there was a conversation with each oncologist where either my treatment changed or my post-treatment tests changed as a result of asking more questions, which had me realize, wow, you really have to be your own advocate. However, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, any question I asked, they had it covered. It was, it, it was uh, solid. There was no uh, need to change it. Like, you know, it's wonderful when you're with mm. a powerful team mm. of people who are really committed to the work they're doing. You, can, you mm. see it. You experience mm. it. You don't uh, feel like just another patient. You um, feel valued and you feel like yeah. you're being dealt with as a human being, not just another number, not just another pe- person coming through the door. <laughs> So now you get your annual scans. Is that a CT scan? Yeah, I have scan, a CT. A pe- um, uh, so it's, um, I have a, a CT, CT scan around the anniversary of my operation. So it's usually later in the year. Um, unfortunately, my scan in late 2017 showed up some new areas of suspicious fluid, and um, which I mm. had a, a CT scan six months after that. And that showed that the areas had increased in size. So there's some larger areas of fluid. Um, and that's when my recurrence was diagnosed. So that was my second diagnosis. And that was... So mm, you were diagnosed with yeah, a recurrence in so 2017. Was late, yeah, that was November 2017. And they, they had suspicions that it was recurrence. But as we naturally have a lot of fluid around our body all the time, particularly in our abdomen and pelvic area, um, they wanted to do a scan, like I say, six months later, just to confirm whether or not it was a return of the mucin or whether it's just natural fluid in the, in the body. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, in March 2000 and, no, sorry, April 2018, uh, yeah, it showed that those areas had increased just ever so slightly and that it was a recurrence of pseudomyxome peritoneal. So I was, yeah, re-diagnosed in early 2018. So it's a very slow-growing mm. type of cancer. Uh, so despite it being a, a very rare, aggressive form, it is a very slow-growing form of cancer in most cases, certainly in my case. And it's, yeah, it's basically a case of keeping an eye on those areas of fluid and seeing what they do and responding accordingly. And so I was placed on a watch and wait basis, whereby I had a CT scan for every every six months. And that's returned to every year. So over the past year to 18 months, I've had just the two scans and each scan has showed up a slight increase in those areas all right and so i'm sorry to hear that that's not the news you want to have yeah like we were saying it's kind of one of those things that it's whilst they treat pseudomyxoma with the radical treatment and the high pec it's got quite a high recurrence rate um so it's in some cases that it can be removed completely 
So I was very lucky with my first operation that they were able to get all the mucin out. Um, and they, they class it as not curing the cancer, but it's not life-saving surgery, it's life-extending surgery. And I'm not 100% okay. sure of the statistics, so quote me if, you know, if I'm wrong. <laughs> but the, um, the likelihood of a successful surgery whereby they remove all the mucin the likelihood with most patients is that it can give them an extended life of five to ten years. So in my case, they got all the fluid out, but it just so happened to return quite soon after. Some people it can return a year after. Some people go ten years post-surgery and it doesn't come back. So it's it's real kind of luck of the draw stuff. Um and yeah, it's just a case of in my with my case monitoring it, um, just to see what what happens really. Mm. Okay, so they say life extending if they can a person can go five to ten mm -hmm. years without a recurrence, then in the current line of thinking with all the understanding they have of it, that's considered mm -hmm. a success. Mm -hmm. And then they treat yeah. again. When yeah, it's so the, the treatment is depending on where the recurrence is situated. Because I have so much scar tissue in my abdomen and pelvis, when the when any recurrence strikes, if you like, uh, it latches onto those areas of scar tissue. So because it's a, a mucinous, mm. a, like a jelly-like substance, it will it will mutate and it will latch on to those areas. And so in my case, I have recurrence uh, detected near my stomach, near my left kidney, near my small bowel, in my pelvis, and uh, on the left of my diaphragm. And it's probably the last year that I've noticed that I can feel it now. Um, I've started to have a few more incidences of acid reflux um, that I didn't necessarily have immediately after my operation and so I can yeah I can feel it and in my my right hand pelvic uh, groin area I've just started to feel like a slight raised area and a bit of a, a sharp twinge and uh, so I went down to Basin State Hospital a couple of months ago and had a chat with Tom Cecil about these new symptoms and uh, yeah he brought my scan forward a couple of months early and we're going to have a chat at the end of this month to, to as to what to do next. The main concern is that if it's pushing on an area of bowel it can, can create a risk of bowel obstruction and so they just want to make sure I think that it's not potentially obstructing any of my large bowel so we'll see what happens but um it's a mm. yeah it's a it's a difficult one to alice allocate precisely whereabouts it is and as to what risks it might pose and then they base decisions around treatment upon that so it's yeah it's quite difficult okay so there's a risk assessment done as far as you know do we want to go ahead with treatment yeah. now? Do we yeah. want to wait? 
But they, what's anticipated, it sounds like, is a mm. treatment. So regardless. at some point, I will need treatment. I don't know when that will be. It might be in a few months' time. It might be in two years' time. It's it's hard to gauge until they establish, uh, like you say, exactly what risks my areas of recurrence pose, potentially. Uh, they are reluctant to operate because the second surgery would be equally as invasive it would be dangerous because they would have to unpick all the stitching and scar tissue from the, the first initial operation and mm -hmm. then they would have to go in and try to remove the areas of mucin where they can i've been told that particularly the area on my small intestine uh due to where it's located it'd be quite tricky to to remove that so the likelihood is that a second surgery in their words they would give me a good clear out <laughs> but it would be highly unlikely that they could get all of the mucin out so it would be a case of going and getting what they can and then kind of patching me up again but I would still be left with some mucin in me um the consequence of having small bowel operated on would be a high likelihood of me being left with a eye lost in my bag. And um, which obviously, as you know, mm -hmm. it's that quality of life after the surgery. So it's, it's another big gnarly yeah. surgery. Yeah. It's another long recovery process. And yeah, it's, it's quality of life. So at the moment, I'm pretty good. I can go to the gym. I can go for a run. I can eat most foods comfortably. It's when your quality of life is compromised that they will think of operating. But also you have to consider the quality of life post-surgery. Uh, is it worth doing that yet if the person is able to live comfortably now? So it's kind of weighing up all these options um, as to what steps to involve next. Yeah. But yeah, sure. so it messes with your head a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I bet so may I ask you what it's like being told that your surgery is a life extending yeah, surgery yeah sure are you yeah. comfortable with that it's I think the the level of acceptance that I have around my condition um, helps a lot I always had the um the pragmatic notion that it would return it's just a case of when uh, like, like i say it is a disease okay. that has a high recurrence rate um it's it's knowing what my options are and i know i'm very fortunate to have options that i can have another surgery i I've been told that they could offer systemic chemotherapy, but my tumour markers are showing as normal at the moment, which kind of suggests mm. that it's not a high-grade aggressive form. Um, and so low-grade, if they did systemic, systemic chemotherapy, it wouldn't necessarily have much of an impact. Uh, so in my case, it's at the moment... Let's see what's going on. Let's check out the scan results. And then if I need a surgery, 
I'll be as ready as I can be, I guess. Um, I, yeah, the thought of going yeah. through it all over again isn't great, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but it's just the reality of my situation now. And I I know mm-hmm. that I've been through it once. I, I can go through it again. It's not going to be easy. No one said it was going to be easy. But I know I can recover from it again. And I... I know what I want to do, just like before. I know what I want to do post-surgery. I want to go scuba diving again. I want to be able to go to the gym again and do deadlifting and, you know, go for a run. And um, I don't want, whilst it will, of course, have an impact on my quality of life, certainly initially um, with my recovery, I don't believe it should hold me back any more than it has done previously. And I think just having that determined attitude is how you deal with it. Um, Whatever happens, happens. I hope, I really do hope that there's no significant complications, but you just have to, yeah, roll that dice, you know, (laughs) and get on with it. You can't can't overthink it. Uh, You just have to just go with the flow. Mm. That's really helpful to hear your experience of it. I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. When I was diagnosed the first time, I truly believed that I would get through it. There were moments, of course, when I questioned that, but then I got through it and I was in my mind thinking, okay, I knew I had that. I was good. Second time I was diagnosed, that took my legs out from beneath me. And I realized I didn't know what the hell I was talking about or I didn't know what the hell I was Mm -hmm. thinking about. (laughs) I didn't know. And it brought to my attention that tomorrow is truly promised to no one. I have no idea. And I don't want to try Mm -hmm. to equate the two. I get that my experience is very different than yours. Mine was a recurrence. It was treated and now I'm getting my scans and it's showing up. Mm -hmm. Cancer free. You are being told that it's just life extending. And so I don't want to suggest that they're similar, but there is a similarity in when I had this recurrence and I realized, okay, this is, I now am considering a Mm. part of my life. Mm. It's, it's something that I'm not going Mm -hmm. to take for granted. And I openly admit all the time, I'm the same jerk I was before I got diagnosed the first time, <laughs> but I do tend to come around a lot more quickly than I used to. That's the thing. I, I always say, you know, they've taken all these organs out of me, but whatever happens, and this is going to sound ultra cheesy, but they can't take away your sense of humor or your spirit. You're still the person that you are. And yeah. You just have to go through it. And I think it it does make you not a better person, but it certainly gives you a whole new perspective on what's important in life. And, you know, you don't get a, a character upgrade with every cancer diagnosis. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like you say, you're still the same person. You've still got your flaws and... You know, we've all got our little idiosyncrasies, yeah. but you do realise that a lot of stuff just doesn't matter and you can't sweat the small stuff and that 
yeah, you just got to go with the flow because you don't know what's around the corner. And I do look at other people who mm-hmm. kind of take, not take things for granted, but are willing to take gambles with their health or just, yeah, don't look after themselves. And I'm by no means some health guru, but yeah, I do think, oh, come on, you've just got to live your life and look after your body and and just do what's best for you. And yeah. It does give you a whole new outlook, absolutely. It, it does, and I don't think what you said was <laughs> cheesy at all. Like, I think it doesn't take away who you are. What that points to is how much we naturally identify mm-hmm. with our bodies as part of who we are, and why wouldn't we? You know, and it's only through this experience where you came to the realization that, wow, I'm really mm-hmm. not my body. Like I've uh, sat with a couple of different spiritual teachers, you know, in retreat. And sometimes that's the teaching about we are not our body. And that can be a tough one to get our head around. Like, what do you mean? What would I be without my body? You know, often the response is, well, that's a good place. That's a good question to start with. Why don't you stay there? <laughs> but you get this awareness, like with so much of your body being removed and with with what you know we grew up believing mm-hmm. defines us or may i say you know what what you believe mm-hmm. defined you as a woman i think and as women particularly we are taught from an early age that so much of our sense of worth is on what we look like and whether we look a certain way or whether we're cute or pretty or feminine enough and you come to realize that it really doesn't matter it's how you treat other people and how you apply yourself to your just daily routine and mm. how you how you go about things it doesn't matter what you look like and i i'm quite lucky that i've never been one of those girls that's had hang-ups about what she looks like i've been quite confident in my body and but mm. even now I look down at my legs and I think, wow, you've been through so much. You've danced on a dance floor in Ibiza until eight o'clock in the morning and you've run, you know, cross country races and done all these amazing things. You've gone up mountains and yeah, it doesn't matter if I've got some thread veins here and there and a little bit of cellulite. It really does not matter because it's no. our bodies are just a vessel. It's... It's who we are inside mm. that counts, and I can't believe I just said that. But, <laughs> but <you know. laughs> I know what you mean, but it, you know that you, you and I are speaking about yeah, life itself, and I feel like that's an appropriate thing to say mm. in this conversation. And I'm so inspired by how you grew up having that confidence mm. in your body. My two diagnoses had me come to terms with how much I didn't feel like mm-hmm. an adequate man, how I felt like I was coming short. You know, I felt like I was coming up right. short so frequently and began to notice how much I compensated for that. You know, when I was, by the time I was 19 years old, I had a motorcycle, long hair, you know, black leather, you know, just 
wanting to convince myself in the world that I was a man. And through my diagnosis and work I did following the diagnosis, I suddenly came to the conclusion that I no longer care mm -hmm. what it is to be a man. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be me. And however I fit into other people's categories, great. And they mm -hmm. can do with it what they will. Because I notice how my mind categorizes people all day long. I don't, and it's not something I do consciously. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's so ingrained in us. And I no longer care how I occur as far as, you know, my masculine side and my feminine side. And uh, it's really inspiring to hear how you were always comfortable in your body. And it sounds like you really do uh, express yourself when it comes to, goodness, the dancing and hiking and scuba diving Just and climbing. Just enjoying life. Yeah, you just have to enjoy running. life. And yeah. Yeah, I've, I've been so lucky since my surgery to, like I say, have a good recovery. And I've been able to have so many amazing adventures uh, travel to different places around the world, scuba dive, go partying and, and just have fun. And, and I really do think that, yeah, I'm not a better person for it. Don't get me wrong. I, I still get irritated by things and, you know, we're, we're just all human. But I do stop mm -hmm. and think, okay, is this worth my time? Is this worth my energy? Is it? Yeah. Okay. Let's go for it. If it's a no, I'll step back <laughs> and I surround myself with positive people. And I don't know, maybe I'm just getting old, but I just don't have the time or capacity for negative people, negative situations. I can't indulge in that. No, I'm with you. I'm perhaps it is a result of getting older, but you know, the time mm. in my life is precious and who I spend it with is very important to me. And a lot of my time I spend alone, yeah. and I really enjoy that. I don't, you know, it's... But who I spend my time with and what I spend my time doing matters a great deal to me because this time is precious. And whatever it was that brought that to my attention, be it a diagnosis, be it age, be it all of it combined, it's uh, mm. something I'm grateful for because... I, d I don't believe it... It should take. These are our lives. It shouldn't have to take something like a cancer diagnosis for people to see that you can you can change your yeah, life. Yeah, if you're unhappy, no. you can change your job or get out of a toxic relationship. It's it's easier said than done when you're in that situation, but sometimes you just have to take that leap because things can get better, and yeah, it shouldn't have to take a a huge event to to do that to give you that courage to do so um yeah, yeah. i find myself getting yeah. quite frustrated at people who moan about their jobs who moan about their partners and you think, <laughs> oh come on but what are you going to do about it because you you have that choice you can make a change yeah you do but it's having the courage to do so <laughs> yeah yeah indeed and i think you know the wisdom of age has mm. a lot to do with that and perhaps just with a diagnosis, some folks just happen to come to that awareness a little yeah. sooner than some folks, you know. And perhaps there's folks who come to it at a young age regardless, but it's, yeah, it's a valuable thing to yeah. remember and to Absolutely. live by. 
Louise, this has been such a joy getting to know you and having this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Um, If I could just give a a small mention, if possible, if I may, for anybody who might be listening who uh, has been affected by cancer, uh, appendix cancer in particular, or who may know someone who's been recently diagnosed, um, there is a, a charity called Pseudomyxoma Survivor, and the the charity is run by patients in UK, um, but it's uh, open to anyone around the world. And it was set up by a lady called Dawn Green, who was a pseudomyxoma patient herself. Um, unfortunately, she passed away a few years ago. Um, but she set up the charity to offer emotional support to anyone going through this rare disease because it can be so isolating when you find out you have it. And so she wanted to create a, a hub, yeah. a charity that offered support to people going through it. So, yeah, my advice to anyone, if they are diagnosed with appendix cancer, would be to give them a, a search online. Their website is www.pseudomyxomasurvivor.org and there's loads of information on there about you know what path to go down if you are, if you are affected. Yeah, org is the name of the website. And okay. it's, yeah, it's amazing. It provided a real lifeline to, to me when I was diagnosed. Yeah. Wonderful. And folks who want to contribute to that charity can do so as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's a Facebook page that people can get involved with as well. Wonderful. Thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. You take care. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Bert. You take care too. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into today's show. If you'd like to learn more about the rare form of appendix cancer Louise was diagnosed with and learn more about her experience, you can go to her blog at mypmpexperience.wordpress.com. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously the Cancer podcast anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as The Saint Kid. See you all on the next episode, and thank you so much for tuning in. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The hosts and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.